America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Episode 11, Franz American Story. Welcome to today's episode. I am really excited to have Franz. He is going to share with us his American story. Thank you, Tina. As Tina said, my name is Franz, but uh, full name is Johannes Franchot van Royen. But I go to by Franz. You know, in the United States, that works well because most people know the Franz and Hans thing. And so, uh, you know, when I introduce myself, I usually get that as a joke and then people remember my names. It seems to have stuck. It's a good name, so I'm happy with it. <laughs> I'm originally from South Africa. I actually came over here 22 years ago, so 98. I came over to the United States as a 20-year-old. Been here a while. I live in Harriman, Utah. I have a wife and three wonderful boys. I work for Adobe as a senior architect. Just grateful to be here and also to spend some time talking about my story. Will you share with us where your story begins? Because as yeah. you said, you're from South Africa. So your story does not begin in America. Take us to no. the start of your journey. Yeah, and that's, that's actually a great thing to start with because, you know, as uh, when you invited me, I kind of had to ponder this whole story myself because you don't think about it every day. Sometimes you forget that you're even South African, especially when you're here so long. My story actually begins when I was a little boy. So around six years old, I have always been fascinated with American culture. And growing up in South Africa, uh, I grew up watching some of the American shows. We were in a country that at that point was, apartheid was still very much part of the country. There were sanctions against us. There were certain restrictions on what you could watch and what you could not watch. But some of the shows were allowed to, to be screened. And one of those shows was Knight Rider. I don't know how many people remember that show. And, you know, that kind of dates me. But that is a show. And it's funny because I remember this one episode very, very well. And it's not, I don't remember the whole thing. I just remember this one section in it where he was driving through probably Los Angeles at night. And I was starting to ask my parents about America, right? In my, you know, I didn't know it's the United States of America, but I knew it was America. And I started asking my parents about it. And I kind of had this fascination with this foreign country that had this wonderful technology and, you know, these superheroes and all this other stuff with it. And it just kind of started fascinating me. And that fascination grew as, you know, throughout my whole life, I absolutely love American pop culture. I love the movies. And, but also, you know, some of the ideals and values the country stands for freedom and equality for all, and being able to stand up and uh, voice your opinion when you need to. And uh, at the time I was growing up, and at that time as a boy, a little boy and a little bit older, that was not necessarily an easy thing to do in, in the country that I come from. And so that kind of grew within me later on in life. I also discovered that I had a very adventurous spirit. I kind of knew I didn't want to stay in South Africa. The two didn't quite, quite get together yet. I had a couple of ideas. I knew I loved American culture and the, the pop culture, especially around it. 
I knew I loved technology. I've always been, that's another thing I discovered at six years old. I always tell, you know, whenever I do a technology course or do an introduction, I tell people that I watched a, another movie uh, called War Games, where this hacker breaks into the government. And, and I was just fascinated. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at what you can do with technology, right? You can destroy the world, which is true, but you can also do very good things with that it. That movie's so, classic. It is. I absolutely love it. And I have all my boys watch it. They know War Games. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're like, what is all this old, you know, all this old stuff and green screens? But I'm like, nope, you guys need to know it. This is, you need to understand the history of technology and where we were and where we are today. There was no internet. I always had those three things as I love the American culture. I love technology, but I also discovered that I do have an adventurous spirit. It's, I didn't want to stay in the country, not so much at that point, wanting to get away from the political situation, but more of just exploring. I wanted to know more of what was out there besides South Africa. And so when I was young, I was like, all right, I'm going to go. And I, you know, I was probably 14 or 15 and I'm like, okay, I'm starting to plan for this. And I'm going to go work on the kibbutz, which is, it's, actually in Israel and you go work there for a couple of years and it's pretty much hard labor and go from being a kid to an adult uh, going there. You're gone from your parents and you have to work there and really understand what hard work is. And so I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. And years passed by and didn't seem so appealing after I graduated. And I got more and more into technology and studied it more. And, you know, lo and behold, the internet was there. I was visiting with one of my friends on an IRC channel, which is classic chat. There wasn't texting or chat rooms. It was IRC. And so you were pretty much just typing back and forth. Just the text came through. And I was visiting one of my friends there and we were in a group room and I got to meet somebody there from the United States. Um, she was there visiting a friend she met that she had this fascination with South Africa, right? And South Africans. And so I, we started talking and uh, we became quick friends. And uh, I told her about how much I like the United States. And she always had questions about South Africa. And that friendship grew and place where um, I was invited over to come stay with her family and kind of just visit the United States and see what this is, which was an ideal, ideal situation. I come visit and see what it is and see if it'll work. And my family was a little bit apprehensive. They're not necessarily the ones that travel. Um, at that point, I was never even in a plane. Never flying and flying for about two days. Internationally. <laughs> Internationally, yeah. And alone. And so my, you know, and we were, I grew up on a farm. They didn't necessarily have the funds to just say, hey, we're going to pay for all of this. And I'm like, all right, well, if this is something you really want, kind of work for it. And so I'm like, all right, well, what can I do? And, you know, I started selling chickens. So uh, my dad was like, all right, you can sell these chickens and you can, you know, if you sell enough of them. You'll have enough to pay for your ticket and stay and so forth. And That's a lot of chickens, isn't it? I sold, yeah, I think I sold close to a thousand chickens oh, or something like that over a three month period, crawling around, you know, crawling around the back of a truck. And because you're selling them live, we would go to squatter camps. That is where pretty much the poorest of the poor in South Africa stays. We really don't have an idea of that poverty here because that, those are people that their floor is a dirt floor. There's no running water. It's just pretty much a couple of uh, metal plates that's put together that forms one room and that's where they sleep. And it's just hundreds to thousands of these little houses just spread out over the area. And our farm was fairly close to one of these squatter camps. And so, you know, we'd load the chickens into the truck and go out there and you kind of park in the middle and, you know, spend most of your day there just selling chickens. You, you know, grab a chicken and give it over and they give you a little bit of cash and kind of how you work. And you know, after three months, I had enough 
for my ticket and my visa, which was overly complex to get back then, my visitor's visa and a little bit of spending cash, which has turned out to, because of the exchange rate, it turns out to be about 150 bucks, which I'm like, oh, I could do quite a bit with 150 bucks, right? <laughs> Had the massive trip, um, get over here to my wife's family. And it was interesting. Uh, you know, I came over and I say my wife's family because the girl I met online eventually became my wife. So this is kind of uh, the end of the story there. And I kind of spoiling it, but um, that, that is what will happen here. But, you know, I came to visit our family for a little bit and I came here and I just loved it. And I remember uh, landing in Salt Lake City um, back then, the, uh, you know, it was pre 9-11. And so people were able to still come up to the gate and her and her family welcomed me and driving on I-215, which you know, I had no idea what this was, on the wrong side of the road in my perception, right, with all these weird license plates. You didn't but... realize it was you that was driving on a <laughs> yes, road in South Africa. Now, now it's bad. I can't go back and drive there because I keep swerving to the other side. <laughs> that, that's gone. I get it. You know, this, we're now, I'm, this is the right side now. <laughs> back then, absolutely not. Everything is just very strange. And I came in pretty late, so I wasn't able to see the mountains or anything like that. And then, you know, the next day I woke up and I'm like, wait, everything is really cold. And I knew this, but I, a little bit colder than I expect coming from late spring to late autumn here because, you know, um, opposite side of the world and, you know, trying to adjust in and then, you know, staying here and I visited for a little bit, but I almost immediately realized that this is kind of where I need to be. It just felt right. The people, you know, people here are wonderful. The opportunities here are great. If I really were that passionate about computer science, this is a good place to be as well. Kind of all of that accumulated together at that point to say, hey, maybe, you know, maybe I can make this work. But trying to immigrate to the United States is not necessarily an easy thing. Um, I think probably today it's harder post 9-11. Um, mm, but yeah. for even back then, it was fairly complex. It's not... A easy process. People don't come in and you, you're handed a green card or citizenship. It's it's a pretty convoluted and complex process to understand to get here. But luckily, at that time, you were able to change visa status. And so I'm like, well, I wanted to learn more. I have a I have an absolute passion for learning and education. And so I'm like, I wanted to pursue my degree in computer science. And this is the place I should do it. I was able to flip from a visitor's visa to a student visa. You know, still only 150, probably 140 at that point um, in my pocket. But I'm like, all right, my, my wife's parents are said, you know, I can stay a little bit with them until I can make arrangements for uh, someplace to stay. We weren't actually dating. We're kind of, you know, uh, still friends, but they're like, you know, if you guys date, you need to get out, which is fair. Um, you know, I think, I think they probably went more, you know, further than I would have gone. You know, I don't know if I would have had somebody from another country come in my house and stay a couple of weeks or, you know, turn out to be a couple of months with my daughter and be like, well, you can stay, but they're very kind and gracious people. And so they let me, let me stay for a couple of months while I got stuff sorted out. And so I enrolled into school for my computer science degree and I started going to school. And luckily, one of the things you can do is work in school. You can't work outside of school, but you can work in the school when you uh, have a student visa. I took a job as a lab aide and it worked out that I found a place, uh, once again, through my wife's family. 
I lived at some storage units. I don't live in the storage unit. I looked after the storage units for them. And so I lived on the little house they had there, which my wife's grandparents owned. And it worked out that I could do everything with $350 a month. So I could get like the rent paid and help them out with taking care of the storage units. I can you know, get a little bit put away for my tuition. So I can have enough for tuition every semester. I was able to scrap some money together to buy a motorcycle, which wonderful adventures in driving in the snow. Um, <laughs> If you, if that's the only thing you have to drive with, that's, there's no optional snow driving. You drive in the snowstorms. And so I, I did that and, you know, enough for gas and the motorcycle and, you know, just enough to get by every month, but I was able to get by. And that's, you know, kind of where it started and starting to go to school and our relationship started to get more serious. And we got married after two years, you know, we got married. And at that point, I don't think we ever discussed not going back because you know she's from here she loves she loves utah and she loves staying here but for me it was the right place to be i mean the amount of opportunity that was here um, like i said the the freedoms that we that we enjoyed here all of the uh, components that you know, makes America great. The ability for us to have, it truly is a melting pot. And it wasn't just a single culture I was engaging with. Many cultures, right? There's people from Brazil and there's people from Mexico and there's people from India. And there are just so many cultures that you work with in Japan and, you know, China. And you get to learn all of these cultures and their foods and their beliefs and truly something for somebody that loves to learn. It is a joy. And you can do this safely and you can do this however you want. And then finally, I think, you know, my big why is, and this is why I kind of like when I have to pull back and truly be introspective, I have to say my big why on staying here. In the end, I think even at a very young age, I realized that I wanted to have a family and I wanted to provide the best for my kids. The only way I could see to do that is not be in South Africa. It's not, there's nothing against South Africa. It's a wonderful country and I still have deep roots there. But the opportunities here are so much greater. As I've gotten older, I've also realized that comes at a cost. Kids have great opportunity, but it comes at a cost of a comfort. They don't live next to a squatter camp, so they don't see the absolute poor every day and may, you know, realizes that any, uh, any one of us could be there. They don't have those realizations. They don't see what they have because they can't see what others don't have, right? Kind of miss out on that piece of it. And I think from being here this long, probably the hardest thing is we have so much and often we're so very ungrateful for it because we just don't know. It is not something that we're purposely ungrateful for. I think we're just don't realize because we don't see it. You know, we don't grow up in an area where there just is nothing. As a kid, I don't think I can send my kids out. You know, it's hard to get them to do chores for 10 minutes. And those kids, you know, they have to, they spend half their day hauling water for their family. Um, right. That's after going to school and then sitting at literally a candlelight at night trying to get their homework done. And there's no TV, maybe a TV, it's a friend's house once a week or something like that. The entertainment is very low and we, we truly are blessed and we truly have a lot that's been given to us. Um, and recognizing that is, I think is a very important thing. So. Can we backpedal a little bit? Yeah. Tell me what the economic, racial, political climate was like when you were there in South Africa. And yep. I, I, I am very naive about it. I don't know a whole lot. And I'm guessing a lot of people are as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I think I saw South Africa, you know, very two very different ways. Um, I grew up 
Uh, right, as a little kid, I was very much uh, in the apartheid years. It is a very interesting thing because when you talk about segregation, I think the South Africans probably how they instituted apartheid, probably one of the worst examples you can think of because I remember going to bathrooms as a kid and seeing boards that said white on, whites only. And this is eventually pretty much everything, beaches, if you go on vacation, boards of whites only. And that means that if you were not white, um, you would go to jail for even going to use a bathroom or taking your kid and going to use a bathroom. Um, it, was, it was an interesting uh, dynamic. I, I actually never went to a, a school that wasn't just whites, right? That, that was, it was white only school and, you know, this was school for anyone else, but that, that was how it was implemented and it was very strict. And it was how you talked and what you said was also constantly under uh, scrutiny. I think what probably gave me a different perspective is my dad was a manager because of the segregation, how people would get managed is different. You know, today you would have a manager managing anyone pretty much right whether they be white or black or asian it doesn't matter but that it was there was the manager for the white people and there was manager for black people and that that's how segregated it was right even the managers wouldn't mix right and so my dad was actually the manager for over all of the black people for the city town uh, for the city town council so he managed about three thousand black people um at the time and he got this job because of his familiarity. He was, you know, he was a farmer. And so he worked with a lot of the tribal people as they worked on our farm. And, you know, they were in their tribes were around us and he would interact. So he could speak the language very well. He knew the cultures. He understood how the cultures, because uh, one of the things that, is, that people outside of South Africa doesn't understand is that there's not just one culture of black people, it is different tribes that's there, right? There's the Zulus, but then there's the Kozas and there's the Vendas. And so there's all these tribes and how they interact, there's still tribal feelings between them, whether it be the Vendas or the Kozas would not like the Zulus and things like that. And so he understood how all of that worked. He was a very uh, a good candidate to be manager of that. Part of the responsibility of being manager of that was that we had to live next to the compound. It was a compound was housing that was provided to the black people that was working in the city. So it was like a little room that they had that they lived in this compound and their, their family might be in KwaZulu-Natal or somebody else and they, they come up and stay the year and go down and visit their family once, you know, once a year. And so they'd stay in this compound. And so my dad had to live right next to this compound. And that's, that's kind of where I grew up. I grew up in a little house that was right next to this compound. And so all of my friends you know, were black because there was no other white people or anything like that living around us. Um, that was just by uh, coincidence that that happened to be that way. And so for me, I grew up having black kids as my friend. And I was also, I guess my adventurous spirit is even before that because my mom had a hard time keeping me in the house. And so I always like wander off. And there was one of the guys that I was working for my dad and he was, he was old and he was a little sickly. And so my dad was worried about him. And so he's like, well, you know, let's make this arrangement. If you can kind of like come work around the house and help out around the house and keep you employed. And part of his responsibility was kind of to babysit me, right? To make sure that I don't wander too far, right? Which my, my kids love the stories because got in all sorts of mischief as far as like wandering off with Mac. His name was Mackie. And so he kind of raised me uh, for a first couple of years because, you know, I was all over the place and he would just walk everywhere with me and, you know, look after me. And so going to first grade 
and going to this, you know, all white school was a very interesting thing because I was always teased that, you know, I was playing with black kids and, you know, that, you know, why? And, and so for me, it was always difficult to understand that that separation or that difference between us because it was just something that I grew up with as far as like, it doesn't really matter what color of skin is who you play with as long as they want to play and have fun with the same toys that you did. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how I grew up there. And yeah, that was going through that. And then going through the whole change in the country, going from this country that was very segregated and then making the, making the choice and voting to abolish apartheid. And that's actually where um, Nelson Mandela was freed and actually became not just freed. I mean, it's often talked about him being freed from prison, but what people need to realize is he is freed from prison and became the president of South Africa at that time. And so there was like a big World Cup rugby where we won the World Cup and Nelson Mandela and Francois Pinar there was a movie made about them, Invictus. And that kind of tells that story. But yes, he, he wasn't just freed from prison. He became the president of this country in turmoil because you're having like, how do you deal with just abolishing this thing that's been around forever? And it took time. And there's a lot of things that you see that similarities. There was a lot of groups of people that said it's doomsday and Armageddon has arrived and South Africa is just doomed and it's going to be destroyed. And some people had said, no, this is the best thing ever. It's going to be just easy from here on. And it wasn't necessarily easy, right? There was still a lot of struggle. There was still a lot of work that had to be done. It was the best thing to do for the country, but a lot of times when we do the best thing, there's also a price afterwards that we have to pay to make sure that we keep that up. And so there was a lot of work. I kind of went through that as a kid. I was going to high school when the whole switch happened. Politically, there's just a lot of opinions. And really, it was also dad against son, as far as opinions go, very strict opinions, a lot of people being very involved in the politics. And that's probably why in my family, not necessarily my dad so much, but his extended, his brothers and sisters were very involved and had very differing opinions, depending on which brother or which sister. He had 13 brothers and sisters. So there was, there was, yeah, there was a lot of opinions. And, you know, one thing I saw there was, and, you know, I think it affected me my whole life is that how you voice your opinions and how you sometimes don't realize others' feelings in those is that you can actually drive those ones that you love the most away. There was rifts that was created in my dad's family that I don't think ever will ever will heal. To me, it became to, you know, I have my opinions about politics and I have my opinions about candidates, but it's not important enough for me to share or force that opinion to where I want to drive a rift in my family. Sounds a lot like what's going on in the United States now, right? It does. And, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, it's a sad thing to see. We have to be careful because it's like sometimes we want to make our opinion known in such a such a violent manner or such a loud manner that we don't realize that we are also hurting others. Right. We're this is one of the things that makes the country great is there's a lot of different people here with a lot of opinions. Right. And one of the hardest things to get used to this culture coming from outside is also a very loud culture. And Americans, so we're not loud, are we? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> loud American. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it, it's not the bad thing, but it is, it is something to get used for, used to, right? And, but sometimes speaking too much and not taking the time to listen, we really need to sometimes just listen because most people believe that most people have goodness in them and they want to do what's best for them and their family. And it's always good to listen and, you know, then make up your own opinion, but also not yell at you know, yell it in somebody else's face so that they feel overwhelmed or they feel like 
um, you don't care about them. You're not going to change their opinion anyway doing that. It's not like yelling in somebody's face or violently going after them is now going to suddenly turn them around and be like, oh, I've been wrong all this time. Therefore, I'm going to completely change who I am. All those political opinions that have changed on Facebook, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it's just an interesting thing. And so going through that, we saw that very much in South Africans. That had a lot of uh, influence on me. And then the other thing is, is because of how the country was economically, it's gotten better. But at that time, the unemployment rate was very, very high. I think it was actually something in the 40%. Oh, my word. Um, yeah, and maybe I'm wrong, right? This is a kid remembering, so I don't want to say something that's completely wrong, but that's what I remember, as I remember very high numbers there. When you have a high unemployment rate, the outcome is always crime. How do you feed your family if you cannot get work? There's nowhere, nothing else to do. How do you get bread in their mouths? And people turn to crime. Um, and so you had high, high crime rate to where hijackings, murders, and all of these became commonplace. And uh, my brother uh, has been hijacked. Uh, I mean, it's, it's in South Africa, it's very, back then it was very common. You're kind of like somebody you know is hijacked. Um, there's quite a few people. You know, he was, he was one of the lucky ones. He didn't have enough gas in his car. And so he kind of ran out, got out and ran away. But he was fortunate because most people don't turn out that way. Um, but the hijackings and then, you know, we lived on a farm. And so there's something, there's farm murders in South Africa. And so I remember just before I came to the United States, pulling up to the farm with my mom after a day of shopping, walking in, strange black car sitting in the driveway and walking into the house. And my, my dad just told my mom, she needs to sit down to hear this. And there's people in the house with black suits and we sit down and they tell us that we've been targeted for farm murder and they're going to come in. It's like a SWAT team coming in and they're going to come in and camp out and wait for these people to come into our house so that they can catch them in the act. It was someone that was going to come and murder your family? Yeah. And so you actually get, it's actually a planned thing, right? So it's like they plan which farms, like they have people that informs them. That's like, yeah, there's cash on hand. My dad kept cash on hand, which is very common because you're dealing in livestock. So people come in and buy and give you the cash. Kind of the chicken story here. You kind of work on that small builds and no, we had cash on hand. So of course we had rifles and we had guns because... We slaughter animals on the farm. And then we have vehicles. And so those are kind of the three golden things that these criminals are looking for. Once again, it's for South Africans, it became kind of a common thing to talk about back then. And so we became one of the targets here. It turned out we were fortunate enough that they weren't able to hijack a car to come to the farm. And the whole thing just went away couple of scary days there that we had to go through and you know um, are you worried about those people coming back if they get the resources were, was that a concern how do you deal with that I would think that's so that's scarring how do you it is Dina oh. and it was interesting I mean I I moved away right so you you kind of got this whole safety thing and the safety that's another thing being in the United States right I remember coming over and this is something small I uh, walking across the street when my wife and I walk across the street I always hold her back and be like whoa what are you doing right and it's like uh, pedestrians are the right away oh my God. <laughs> and so it's just there's some stuff that's very safe here that is not necessarily available in other countries and my parents stayed at the farm for a little bit longer but it, there's a couple of other incidents where there was one night where they almost got through to the main house so just to, to kind of paint a picture 
picture here, you have like multiple pieces of security in place, metal gates with bars, uh, you know, bars on your windows, alarm systems and everything else. And so it's not like they break down one door and they're in like my parents would have like, you know, the front door and then a security door. And then before the bedroom started, there would be another security door. Right. And so they got through that first front door. My dad woke up. Sorry, go ahead. I said, that's crazy to live like that. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and so my parents were, you know, my parents are older. And so they were probably, my dad was in his seventies and my mom in her late sixties. And they were alone at that time on the farm. My brother was working in the city and so was my sister. And so they got through and, you know, my dad got woken up and, you know, he was going to make enough noise that they ran away. But that shook him so much they actually started taking turns to sleep my mom would sleep and then my dad would be awake and pretty that particular incident was very dramatic for them to a place where i think after about a year and a half they sold they actually moved to like a managed or a call it here like not assisted living but like gated community yes Um, a gated community yeah so with a security guard up front and she's been living there ever since right my dad's passed away since but my mom's been living there ever since and that's it's you know, you have security guards, you have a wall, you're not in out in the middle of nowhere. But that I think was probably the one that shook it the most for them where they're like, we can't do this anymore. Because you start living in a constant fear. You know, you, you're constantly, any sound outside that the last sound I'm going to hear because they're going to come in and kill us, right? Take everything. And so that kind of danger does play on you. It is, it's an interesting thing. And I, I experienced some of it growing up, not as much. After I left, I think it intensified quite a bit to a point where they couldn't handle it anymore either and they they decided to move into the city so that's kind of that's kind of you know that the as far as like the safety uh, the safety aspect of there goes and then from a financial aspect like i said high unemployment rate introduced a high crime rate but also your own opportunity is stunted it's not like here you know i believe that if you if you work you probably will get a opportunity to work it's not necessarily the best job or you not or don't always find whatever you want um, that makes the best amount of money that you think you need. But at least you can find something, put food on the table. That's why, you know, when I came here and with that 350 a month, that was good because it's like, it puts my food on the table. I'm not going into debt. I'm, you know, everything is good. You can do it here. Even for an immigrant that's not allowed to work outside of the school, I was able to do it. Whereas like there, it just, there is just nothing. And so, you know, reverting to crime, Yes, it's a bad thing, but it's not like they have a choice here, right? It's not like there is this plethora of work. And so they're doing this just because of greed. It's more to feed their families. This That was kind of the climate and what was going on as I was leaving the country. Now, a lot has changed, right? I've been gone 22 years. So it's not like it's exactly that way too. I mean, they still struggle with unemployment. They still struggle with crime. You don't when you when you have high employment, you have crime, but a lot of it is getting better. But it doesn't mean it's an overnight thing. I think it's a very much a gen, you know multi generational thing. Like I said the big why here is if you look back, that's not something I think most of us would want for our kids. We want to have our kids have an easier life than we did. And I think the United States definitely will provide my children that. But it's a cautionary tale because we forget that it's too a little. It can be a little bit too easy, right? Going to school, it's not hard. It's, you know, it's just, there's just the opportunity is here. If you really want to do it, you can. And because it's so easy, because it's so easy to get to, I think we just don't do it. And so we can do greater things if we just realize what we have already. I'm curious on your take with illegal immigration, because 
from your viewpoint, I would think that you can kind of understand why they do it. Yeah, and that's the thing is like I mentioned early on, right? One of the things that right law should be upheld. It's not like if if you don't upheld the, if you don't have laws in place, it does tend to chaos, right? That's just kind of the the laws of the world here. However, when the laws are so convoluted and it is like very confusing, it becomes really hard to just say, "Hey, I'm going to immigrate." Like I said, even during my time, which was pre nine eleven. I mean, nine eleven caused the immigration laws, um, you, you know, to change significantly to a point where it even became harder for me to be doing the same thing I did there. For me to be kind of go from a visitor to a student, I would have had to fly back to South Africa, change my status, and then fly back here. That's not a cost that I would have ever been able to do. So I, you know, I'm grateful for how it was when I am there. But I remember when you, when when we got married, it's like, oh, you're married now, you're good, and that's that's kind of the the impression that's given to citizens here. Is like, well, when you're married. You kind of have that golden pass, and you do because you are married to a citizen. But it doesn't mean it's easy to get. It's not you get your, you know, you sign your marriage license, and it's like here you go. It's like all right, well now you're on your own, and you have to go and figure it out. And I remember going with Lisa, with my wife, going to file for my green card. And back then it was I,、uh, INS. It wasn't Homeland Security. It was called INS. And going to the building in Salt Lake, and the first time we were extremely naive when we arrived. We printed off the papers from the internet. We Filled it out. It was quite a few. We filled it out, handed it. You know, went in there、um, around like ten o'clock in the morning. The line was huge. We were shocked how long it was. There's actually people that stand there for hours just trying to get their papers filed. And you get up to the front of the line, and the guy takes my papers, look at it, and puts a big, big red thing in it. And he's like, "Nope, you guys have filled this in- incorrectly. Go back. You have to redo this all again." And it's like, and I'm like,、uh, I don't, you know, I don't know what I did wrong. And he's like, "It needs to be this and that, and you need to come back." And so the next time, you know, I did all this research, and it was hours and hours of research of how to actually fill this out because we didn't, we're nearly, nearly we're married couples. We don't have money for an immigration lawyer, so we're trying to figure this stuff out. And like, it's it's extremely convoluted and. So you kind of get through that, and we decided, all right, we're going to go at 4 a.m. in the morning and actually camp out in the INS. I still remember we went to the McDonald's because they're open. We got some McDonald's. We went to the INS building, and we're second in line. There's somebody that beat us, right? And、uh, we went in, and luckily the papers were filed. But it, and then even then, it's like you can't work yet. You have to wait for this status to clear, and you can't leave the country unless you,、um, you know, apply for this I four two three. And right, it's like, oh my gosh! And they're like, if you lose that this paper, you can't come back in. So we, because we wanted to go visit my parents, they weren't able to come over for the wedding, and so you had to file for a special. Leave to go outside the country, and if you anything happens to that, it's a bunch of papers that I was carrying around my body, praying that these papers just nothing happened to him. Because if anything happens to him, you can't come back in. You start living in a very interesting space where you're constantly thinking you're going to be asked to leave.、Um, I remember, right? You're called a legal alien. And it's like nothing. The first part might be okay. The second part doesn't make you feel very homey. Part of that is trying to work through that and saying, worrying that you know, at any day you can get some kind of paper from the INS saying, you know, you did this or something in your record isn't quite right, and now you've been denied. So that that's constantly haunting you up until the point where you get citizenship. You understand the. You may not. We we have rules and we have laws that we need to follow. But you get how the illegal alien status happens because it's frustrating. It's hard for the layman 
to be able to read this information when they don't have money, they don't have a lot of resources to help them. So you get that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, like I said, I'm not, I don't often speak out on politics, but, and so this might get me in trouble, but you know, I don't, I don't believe building a wall is the right solution, right? I think looking at the laws and understanding that people want to be in this great country, they want to partake of this opportunity and bringing in those people, people like myself and, you know, everybody else that I've worked with adds value to the country. So working through those laws and understanding how they impact you and making it to how somebody can actually understand how to get the opportunity probably is a better way to spend our effort and resources than just saying stay out. Because one, it doesn't send a a good message anyway, but it's also people are going to try to get in here because they want to partake of this just like I did, right? We really need to figure some of these things out on a deeper level. From a immigration perspective, it's a hard thing. And, And I came through, I had kind of, the things fall in place for me around like getting here. Even my complaining about how hard it was, it was still a lot easier than a lot of other people's road that they have to take. I heard about a woman that she was, her parents came here on green cars. Oh, and she was born in Canada, I think, or some other country. She came here and she lived here essentially um, on a permanent resident car. So that means you can reside here for however that card is valid for. When that card expires, you have to leave. But she grew up in the United States and eventually she decided to apply for citizenship. But it turned out that she had something against her record where she became involved in a a disagreement with her neighbor. The neighbor filed a lawsuit. She just pleaded no contest and that was marked on her record. And so when she applied for citizenship, she didn't get it. Now she has to go back to a country that's not home. Like trying to tell my kids, hey, you are not American citizens. Go back to South Africa. They would not. That's not. They, two of my kids have never seen South Africa. It's a horrific thing to tell, tell somebody that the place that you call home, that you've grown up in, that this is where your roots are is not really your home. You have to go back. That fear does start getting instilled in you as you go through that process. And, you know, it took me a long time to get citizenships and I, I, I kept putting it off. And uh, my wife always said, he doesn't really care about it. But I think, you know, looking back, I do very much care. But the trauma of going through to get the green card was like, oh, I don't know if I can go through this thing again, right? Like four o'clock in the morning and, you know, you're, you're told that your paperwork's garbage and you don't know what you're doing. And you get treated like you should not be here as you go through that process. And to be honest, the citizenship after when I did that was a lot better. Like you were treated a little bit better than the permanent resident one, where I remember it was a very, very special experience that I actually uh, was naturalized in, this is the place, there's that barn, um, and this is the place downtown. And they actually had all of, it's a big group of people that gets naturalized during that day. And they actually had all of those people share their stories, like how they got here. And it was a very special experience because the one thing I've realized is anyone that makes that effort, anyone that comes over and becomes a citizen of this country, it it wasn't for free. There was sacrifice, there was effort, there was dreams. It was work they had to do to get here and become a citizen. There was nobody that's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really care. And that's, but you know, they're just, they just gave me this thing. It's not, they, they had to sacrifice quite a bit. Most of us do not have our families here, right? I have a cousin here, a niece here, but that's the only family since I've been here for 22 years that's been here permanently. You have to give up family, you have to give up friends, places you know, and everything else to be here. And it is, 
everybody that's come here that's immigrated has had to sacrifice to be here. So I think that makes them a valuable part of this country. What year did you become a citizen? 2013. Okay. Yeah. Not that long then. No, like I said, I let my green card almost expire. No, yeah, my green card almost expire. I think I had a year left and I'm like, I don't want to renew it for the green card again. I know I don't want to do that process. So yeah. between those two. And you always on a green card, you're constantly worried because they can revoke it. Citizenship, not so much. And so I'm like, nope, I know I want to stay here. I know. So I'll, I'll take this plunge and I'll, I'll do this. And it wasn't so much like, uh, I don't know if I want to go back. That never came in my mind. It wasn't about going back. It was having to face the process again that I really didn't want to. But then I'm like, but I want to stay. So I'll do this again. Do you keep your South African citizenship or is that revoked? For the United States, you can actually keep whatever citizenship you yeah. had. Okay. Yes. In South Africa, I think it's revoked, but I don't know because I haven't been back since I became a citizen. So I've never traveled back on, I still have my passport. I don't take anything from you. So they don't take my ID or my passport or anything like that for South Africa. But I've also, I don't think I've ever filed taxes in South Africa. I have not. So I, I really wasn't a citizen of South Africa. I was born there, right? I have my birth certificate, but I never worked there. So I'm never classified in the South African system as, you know, taxpayer or anything like that because I never worked there. I'm curious, when you first came to America, what were some of the things that surprised you, that shocked you, that you weren't prepared for, even if it's something trivial? I think like, like I mentioned before, I think like the late, no, it's not necessarily laid back. I'm having a hard, a hard time like articulating it, but more of the comfort, right? It is, we're safe here. People go to their malls. They stay out late. The food, the portion sizes, that's probably the thing. If I were to, if I were to have to say the one small thing that I was surprised at is portion <laughs> sizes. Yes, because like buffets, we went in South Africa, there's not... Uh, buffet is not, I don't know if that's changed, but in my time, buffet was not a common place to go do, right? There was a one or two that we knew of. And my mom would like take grocery money and like shave off every week the, the grocery money my dad gave her and save it for a year for us to go eat at this buffet that was like two hours away from the farm. And so there, it was a huge treat. And so, and it wasn't as, when I say that it's like, couple of dishes when i came here and it's like let's go to chakarama and i'm like what you know, there's just food everywhere and it's like you can have as much as you want and it's like oh my gosh this is just like you know desserts and it's just the amount of food and then yeah. you know we did make a trip to las vegas where we had the buffet there and i'm like this is even more extravagant it's like, it's just like how much of this food's going to waste and it's like it is crazy the amount of food and the portion sizes. Yeah, it, it, it's... I interviewed uh, one of our friends who's from Germany. And he said that when he came to America for the first time, he was amazed at how big the drinks were. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. That's the other thing is, is I, I love refillable drinks. Yeah. In South Africa, when you get a drink, it's non-refillable. Yeah, and they fill said. it. And that's why we don't get ice. Like ice outside of the United States is a very strange thing. Oh, like I you, know. They'll always ask you, do you, you know, if you're like, well, can I have ice with that? And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and the reason why is, is because if you put ice in, you have less of a drink. So you paid for the ice. So you're like, no, 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 I don't want the ice. So coming here, you're like, 
for a couple of years, I didn't drink it with ice. I would always drink my drinks. And then I'm like, but it's nicer cold and I have unlimited amounts. So it doesn't really matter anymore. And when my brother came to visit, it was exactly the same experience. He's like, wait, because he, you know, he gets his drink and they're like, can I refill your drink? He's like, no, no, no. I don't want my drink refilled. And I'm like, no, no, it's free. And he's like, wait, what? And I'm like, yep, it's free. You don't have to pay for the refill. <laughs> it is all free. He's like, oh yeah, come and re- keep that drink full. <laughs> yeah, Mike took my husband. Mike took me to France, and I I hated that warm soda. <laughs> yeah. I want my ice. Yeah, and I've been spoiled there too. I travel quite a bit for work, and now everywhere I go, I'm like, yeah, can I have ice with that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always interesting to see everybody's That's reaction. Hilarious, isn't that funny? Yeah. Nope. No wonder why we're all overweight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I have one last question for you. Yeah. And that is, what does America mean to you? I think what, you know, the best way for me to say it, it means my family. Okay, so my why is here. My why for being here is to provide my kids the opportunity to have a wonderful life. And so what it means for me is to be be able to provide the best for my family and my kids. And so therefore, you know, it means a great deal for me because in the end, you know, for me, everything is around the family and my love towards them and providing for them. And I know America and the United States provides, gives me the ability to give them that, be a good provider to them, give them good opportunities. That's really what it means to me. Perfect. Thank you for sharing your American story. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Tina. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Franz American's story. His episode is a great reminder to be grateful for even the smallest, seemingly insignificant gifts we have here in America. Please join me next week. I have a phenomenal guest, Colonel Greg Gadsden. It will be an incredible episode. And once again, thank you for listening to the We the People, Our American Story podcast. Please subscribe, leave a rating, and tell your friends and family. Until next Friday, see you then.